The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, March 16th. In today's news, the Federal Reserve announces its most dramatic moves since the 2008 financial crisis to keep the economy solvent amid the coronavirus pandemic. The CDC issues new guidance as governors impose more restrictions from coast to coast, and essential details of the White House's testing plan remain murky. But first, the big idea. In the Chinese city of Wuhan, the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic, doctors made life or death decisions last month when a thousand people needed ventilators to support their breathing, but only 600 were available. In Iran, where numerous high-level officials have been infected, doctors sought unsuccessfully to get the international community to lift sanctions so they could purchase more of the life-saving machines. And in northern Italy, doctors took the painful step last week of issuing guidelines for rationing ventilators and other essential medical equipment, prioritizing treatment for the young and others with the best chance of survival. Such tough choices could well be ahead for the United States, a nation with limited hospital capacity. There are now 3,244 confirmed cases as of last night, jumping by about a third in 24 hours. At least 62 of our fellow Americans have died. But grim projections from epidemiologists estimate that as many as 40 to 60 percent of our country's population of 327 million could eventually become infected. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said last night that it is only a matter of time before ICU beds are full. The situation in the U.S. is more complicated than in other nations due to our country's diversity, deep political and economic divisions, and decentralized decision-making. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has laid out general principles for how to allocate scarce resources in a pandemic response plan, but They leave most of the details to individual states and institutions. The result is a patchwork of approaches, with some states proposing broad ethical principles to determine need and others assigning priority scores using detailed algorithms for patients based on their pre-existing health problems and age. In an extreme outbreak, rationing would raise tortured questions. Should someone with terminal cancer or serious heart disease get more or less priority? Should the CEO of a hospital or a health worker be able to jump the queue? What about pregnant women? How should prisoners or undocumented immigrants be considered? All things being equal, would a lottery or a coin flip be an equitable approach? These are really, really, really hard moral decisions. George Anessi, a critical care specialist at the University of Pennsylvania, says that in a public health emergency like this one, you shift from focusing on individual patients to focusing on how society as a whole benefits. That's not how usual care works. In normal times, U.S. hospitals operate mostly on a principle of first come, first serve, like getting concert tickets, as one clinician put it. In a mass casualty situation, that all goes out the door. Americans generally agree that in a crisis, the goal should be doing the greatest good. But the concept of the greatest good has shifted depending on the era, setting, and culture. During World War II, the greatest good might have been getting our GIs back out on the front lines. When the Titanic hit an iceberg, it was all about saving the women and the children, while the men were left to die on the sinking vessel. 
Ethicists here in America have historically talked about saving the most lives as doing the greatest good. But with greater recognition these days of factors such as quality of life and burdens on the healthcare system, the discussion has shifted from maximizing the number of lives saved to maximizing life years saved. Saving one child may outweigh the good of saving two elderly adults, at least according to the cold, hard, and frankly, awful arithmetic of life expectancy. For now, hospitals still have the capacity to handle more sick if the virus's spread is slowed using strategies like social distancing. But the situation is evolving quickly, and experts say it's impossible to predict how many people might become seriously ill and whether they could overwhelm the system's capacity, as happened in Italy, Iran, and China. Many of our state-level plans were written following the global devastation of the SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003, and then after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Many are still in draft form, and none has ever been activated in a real crisis. State health officials and hospital leaders say they're urgently updating the plans and trying to address the unique aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Arthur Kaplan, a bioethicist at NYU, has served on numerous national and international panels addressing resource allocation during Zika, Ebola, and the avian flu outbreaks. He said no single approach is more right than the others, but he said transparency is critical as this crisis develops. The public will accept triage and rationing, he explains, if they understand the process. But if it's secretive or looks like favoritism to politicians or the rich, they will not accept that, whatever the rules are. Well, much about COVID-19 is still a mystery. Its origin, for example, and how exactly it spreads. One thing doctors are sure about is how it kills. It attacks the lungs, leading to respiratory distress. And in these situations, it's access to oxygen therapy with a mask or to mechanical ventilation for more severe illnesses that can give a patient's body time to fight the virus. Literally, that's the difference between life and death, time, the ability to breathe. The earliest reports from China estimated that about 6% of patients needed ventilator support, but those numbers were misleading, experts now say, because so many people never made it to the hospital or they were simply unable to gain access to ventilators. Only about 25% of those who died had been placed on ventilators. Newer information from Italy shows a much higher number, 10%, requiring mechanical ventilation. A physician at the University of Milan says it's like a bomb that explodes. It happens all of a sudden and it keeps growing and growing and growing. The Italian Critical Care Society last week sanctioned the idea of placing age limits on access to intensive treatments and said doctors should privilege greater life expectancy. By many accounts, the U.S. is ill-prepared for this scenario. A 2005 federal government report estimated that in the event of a pandemic like the 1918 flu, we would need mechanical ventilators for 740,000 patients. Currently, we have 160,000 ventilators available for patient care, with another 8,900 in the national stockpile. Hospital officials and doctors in several states emphasize that rationing will be a last resort. They're trying already to experiment with other ways to increase that capacity. Initially, patients will likely be transferred from more crowded urban facilities such as Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and the University of Pennsylvania Health System in Philadelphia, which routinely operate at 80 to 90 percent capacity, to community or rural hospitals that may have more intensive care beds available. If the number of victims surges beyond that capacity, doctors may try novel approaches such as having two patients on one ventilator. Tubing for ventilators, which is usually thrown out, could be sanitized and reused. 
other types of hospital equipment, such as machines used for sleep apnea, could be potentially repurposed as makeshift ventilators. Only if those strategies fail and the sick continue to exceed capacity would rationing protocols be put into place. To avoid conflicts of interest and the emotional toll of life or death judgments, most state plans call for a senior supervisory doctor or a panel of doctors, similar to the three wise men protocol developed in Britain for this scenario, to make the toughest calls. That way, the doctor who's on the front lines caring for the patient won't have to decide whether they live or die. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, the Federal Reserve dropped its benchmark interest rate to zero last night, a full percentage point, and said it will buy at least $700 billion in government and mortgage-related bonds to keep the financial markets liquid as the U.S. economy hurdles toward a virus-induced recession. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said the central bank will restart quantitative easing and give more generous loans to banks so they can give loans to small businesses and families in need of a lifeline. Powell said Fed leaders met Sunday afternoon because they anticipate a significant effect on the U.S. economy in the coming months, including negative growth in the second quarter. President Trump called the decision to lower interest rates news that made him very happy. These ultra-low interest rates are expected to remain until the U.S. economy recovers, whatever that means. Stock futures slumped after the Fed's announcement, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average set to open down more than 1,000 points this morning. Such heavy-handed central bank actions raise concerns that the economy may be in worse shape than even many experts thought. Indeed, stock futures fell as European markets also plummeted big while you were sleeping. Dire numbers coming out of China today offer a harbinger of what may be in store for our economy. Industrial output in China, where the coronavirus started, contracted at the most dramatic pace in 30 years in January and February, falling 13.5% on an annualized basis, while retail sales collapsed more than 20% from a year earlier. Number two, despite such alarming trajectories and a new recommendation from the CDC that Americans cancel or postpone events of 50-plus people for the next eight weeks, some Republican lawmakers are still shrugging off these urgent warnings. Congressman Devin Nunes, the Republican from California who is a close Trump ally, went on Fox News Sunday and encouraged Americans to go out dining and drinking, directly contradicting public health officials' admonitions for social distancing to slow the rate of infection. But Nunez's endorsement was quickly rebutted by a bipartisan chorus of governors. California Governor Gavin Newsom asked all bars, clubs, and wineries to close. He recommended that restaurants cut their occupancy in half and called on everyone older than 65 or with chronic conditions to self-quarantine at home. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican, and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, a Democrat, shuttered all bars and restaurants in their states. The move in Illinois lasts through the end of March. In Ohio, it's indefinite. Millions of students could remain out of school for the remainder of the academic year, officials in Texas and Ohio said on Sunday. At least 33 states have now closed their public schools. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo urged Trump to activate the Army Corps of Engineers to prepare emergency medical facilities nationwide. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio ordered bars, clubs, and movie theaters, including Broadway shows, to close. And beginning Tuesday, will only allow pickup and delivery from restaurants. D.C.'s also closed nightclubs and placed new restrictions on bars and restaurants, while Maryland has shuttered casinos and Virginia has banned gatherings of more than 100 people. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker banned gatherings larger than 25. In the worst-hit part of the country, Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee issued an emergency proclamation that will close all bars and nightclubs and also prohibit dining in restaurants and restrict gatherings to fewer than 50. 
Puerto Rico's governor, Wanda Vasquez Garcet, closed all non-essential businesses and is the first to enact a curfew across the island. America's transportation networks are struggling under the strain. Abrupt coronavirus checks caused agonizing delays this weekend at U.S. airports as tens of thousands of anxious passengers said they encountered jam-packed terminals, long lines, and hours of delays. Flights from more than two dozen European countries were routed through 13 of our busiest travel hubs. Meanwhile, thousands apparently left a Miami cruise ship without screenings after a former passenger tested positive for the coronavirus. But here's some good news. The nation's biggest retailers, dairy farmers, and meat producers say that the American food supply chain remains intact and has been ramping up to meet the recent unprecedented stockpiling. Number three, the Trump administration announced Sunday afternoon that some of the most vulnerable Americans will be able to get tested for the coronavirus from their cars starting this week. Good news, but significantly less ambitious than the swift nationwide testing campaign that Trump promised on Friday. At a news conference, Vice President Pence and federal health officials said the first people allowed to use drive-through testing will be healthcare workers and first responders, as well as people over 65 who have symptoms consistent with the virus, such as a cough. The officials did not explain exactly where or in how many states the drive-through tests would begin, other than to say it would be in the hardest-hit areas. And they backed away from an announcement by Trump on Friday that Google was about to release a website through which any American could type in their symptoms and learn whether they warranted a test. Sadly, federal vaccine development sites are ill-suited to counter the pandemic. Nearly a decade ago, the U.S. government invested heavily in four sprawling facilities that officials said could rapidly make vaccines and other life-saving medicines in America if the country was struck by an outbreak like this one. But as the nation confronts the coronavirus pandemic, none of those four sites, which are located in Florida, Maryland, North Carolina, and Texas, have developed or are anywhere close to developing medicines to counter the outbreak. Instead of leading the rush to find and mass manufacture a vaccine or life-saving treatment, two of the sites are taking no role at all, while the other two expect to conduct small-scale testing of potential vaccines. Instead, it's being left to private businesses. And the German government is incensed today over a reported attempt by Trump to take their vaccine. Government officials in Berlin allege that the Trump administration has been attempting to secure exclusive rights to any vaccine created by the German biopharmaceutical firm CureVac, Germany's Welt am Sonntag newspaper reported Sunday that the administration wanted to secure the rights and move research and development to the U.S. The vaccine would be developed only for the USA, that newspaper reported. CureVac pushed back against the report, saying it remains committed to developing a vaccine to help and protect all patients worldwide. Top White House aides said they were unaware of any communication or offer by Trump to CureVac, but a senior White House official cautioned that Trump often has private conversations of which his senior staff is not aware. And CureVac's CEO met with Trump earlier this month at the White House to discuss a coronavirus vaccine. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, March 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.